0: All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, New delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code MYKAPEDIA over at their website, and we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now
1: back to the show. Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is
0: MYKAPEDIA, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Hey
1: everyone, it's Mickey here, you're listening
0: to Wikipedia. This week on the podcast, I speak to Andy Blow, founder of Precision Hydration, all about hydration, funny that. We discuss Andy's initial interest in the area, coming from an athlete background and his own experience with hydration and getting it wrong, and how this led to the creation of Precision Hydration. We discuss the accuracy of the sweat test, because I've got to be honest, as I was with Andy, I wasn't really bought into the idea. And we talk about what it can tell us, what is a field-based test any athlete can do to determine their hydration requirements why some athletes sweat more or lose more sodium than others, and any sex-based differences that we need to be aware of. And we also talk a load more because Andy is great at explaining things, he's a really good athlete, and we discuss his work with his athletes and also what his response is to sodium deniers and people who don't necessarily... Believe that we need to consider sodium to the extent that Andy and precision hydration does. So, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation because um, there are a number of objections which are met and which we have a really good discussion about. And I really liked that. It was quite a good open discussion. And for those of you unfamiliar with Andy, he is a sports scientist with a degree in sports and exercise science from the University of Bath, an expert in sweat, dehydration, and cramping. Andy previously worked as a team sports scientist for the Bennett and Renault Formula One teams and remains an advisor to the Porsche Human Performance Center. He was an elite level triathlete in his younger days. Uh, Apparently, he raced against Dr. Dan Blues. Uh, Andy has finished in the top 10 of Ironman in 70.3 races, as well as winning an Xterra World title. It was Andy's own struggles with cramp and dehydration that led to him specializing in electrolyte replenishment and founding Precision Fuel and Hydration. He is a leading figure in the world of sports hydration and has worked alongside Dr. Raj Jutley as well as other top sports scientists to co-author a number of studies and books. And we have a link as to, uh, to Andy's bio in the show notes and of course to Precision Hydration. All right guys, enjoy this conversation. Andy, thank you so much for taking time with me this morning to chat all about hydration. And uh, I don't know if you'll approve, actually, but I have coffee and and an electrolyte drink to um, supplement. I've just come in from a run, actually. Uh, the conversation this morning, and we're actually going to be speaking about both of these. Uh, you're an athlete or, oh, I mean, I, I imagine you're. we're all athletes, but I understand that you're an athlete before you were a sports scientist. Can you sort of share a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and by the way, I'm impressed because I know that we're talking at 6.30 a.m. your time. So if you've already been out and done a run, that's <laughs> pretty good going. Um, I'm, yeah, an I'm an early person. bird. Yeah, I'm an early bird as well. So I kind of, yeah, I'm often out, but... Maybe usually my runs start at half five or six, but not a lot before that. <laughs> yeah,
0: to be fair, it was particularly early. But I figure that, you know, by the time my day I finished with clients at ten, I've basically had a day, so then I can just like faff off for the rest of it. So it's not too bad.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, all good. Um, no, so my my kind of athletic background was playing football like most kids in the uk most lads in the uk anyway when i grew up um i clearly wanted to be a professional footballer that seemed like the good life um i was it became pretty apparent fairly early on that i wasn't going to go down that route um i i did a bit of cross-country running and swimming as a kid um, not to any great level i kind of ran at english schools um but was making up the numbers as opposed to worrying anyone near the front, and I swam a little bit for a swimming club, but again i wasn't going to nationals or anything and then kind of in my mid teens got into endurance sports i went my dad took me to a triathlon and I did a biathlon, which was like the swim run equivalent and I think you know i I, I kind of remember still quite vividly seeing the, the cool bikes and that kind of stuff, and thought I fancy you go like that, so got myself a road bike, started to get into triathlon and then Used to get VHS videotapes of Dave Scott and Mark Allen doing the Ironman in Hawaii, and watch Transworld Sport on a Saturday morning for all the crazy things. Used to watch um, Steve Gurney doing the coast to coast race in Amazing. New Zealand. Yeah, um, so I was inspired by those kind of things. Um, I actually got to do the coast to coast race a few years ago as well, which was a kind of a bucket list thing for me. Um, but. But yeah, kind of that—that that got me into endurance, and uh, I pursued that pretty um, persistently for a number of years. I, again, a bit like the professional football thing, I really wanted to go to the Olympics. It became apparent that although I probably got a bit closer to that than I did to being a professional footballer, I didn't get. You know, I was—I was never worrying the top five or six triathletes in the uk so i was making up the numbers in the national team and um, doing Xterra, switched to doing ironman and all that kind of stuff so and, and then since then I, I kind of stopped racing seriously in the early 2000 early to mid 2000s i actually mainly stopped if i'm honest because i had to have a pretty big knee surgery and um since then i've kind of bitted and bobbed around doing all the things that the surgeon told me not to do with a you know with a, a, a rehabilitated knee but it seems to be holding up at the moment and we're a few years past that now
0: nice and so do you, can you still like run and and stuff
1: yeah yeah i have to be a little bit careful with the frequency and intensity of what i do but yeah. i've run some marathons and some ultras and stuff and it's more about like not training not running every day on it i suppose um just have to just have to be a bit careful
0: yeah for sure uh, random how old are you andy
1: Forty-five.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because cool, you just like sort of listed off a whole range of your, your your athletic career, and it seems like quite extended. So I'm like, oh I think you're older than what I thought you were. Um, and yeah, true, you actually are. Uh, so, so obviously, as an athlete, um, you know, how important was nutrition to you? Sort of going through it, particularly, I guess, suppose in your in your later years, obviously, because we're a little bit more attuned to things like that.
1: Yeah, I think early on i look i look back on my career like probably a lot of athletes do and realize that especially the era that i was in in the 90s and early 2000s although the knowledge on nutrition and hydration was starting to become more it was it was a bit more out there this was kind of pre internet really know, Inter- yeah, there wasn't so much stuff on the on the internet so everything was a bit behind in terms of knowledge transfer from what was going on to athletes. I didn't necessarily, I don't think looking back at it, I engaged with it as much as I should have done. I think I, think I left some good performances on the table because of a lack of Focus on nutrition and hydration, and I certainly but but what I did have was some really bad experiences with hydration because I have a really really high sweat rate, and I lose a lot of salt in my sweat. Both were facts that I learned right at the at the very very back end of my career, and I learned them out of really doing some very desperate investigation because so many races were getting ruined i i I spent years trying to qualify to go and do the hawaii ironman and managed i managed to qualify a few times i went once and i had such a horrific experience because i just screwed up my hydration i ended up with you know hypernatremia i ended up putting in a, a pretty ropey performance and it kind of put me off from going back and doing those things and after that i had i did some sweat tests i learned about electrolyte loss I learned about fluid loss and I, I managed to put it into practice for some of my later races even though it was towards the end of my career and it was like not it made an, it made such a huge difference for me that when I went on and, and all throughout that time although I was a sort of semi-professional athlete I was never truly completely full-time I always worked doing something and it, it was coaching or sports science related and I kind of went into sports science more heavily when I stopped competing as an athlete and sweat testing and hydration and, and all of that became an immediate area of interest and has ultimately led to the business that I run now which is precision fuel and hydration
0: yeah So Andy, how, so I find it really interesting because I speak to a number of clients, um, endurance based athletes, and I have a lot of them who are, um, similar in that, you know, they've either qualified or they're trying to qualify for Kona and they go to a hot environment and they're just like, I just don't do that well in the heat. and you know, and I'm listening to you talk and I'm wondering how much of that is truly they're just not very good in the heat or actually is it just something that they're missing with their hydration practice? Like do you have a sense of, are they actually one and the same? Like if someone can dial in their hydration, then actually, I mean, all things obviously acclimatizing to the environment is important as well. But do you think a lot of those issues could be mitigated with that correct hydration sort of
1: yeah it for for me that was absolutely the case you know i went into races in the heat extremely well conditioned extremely fit extremely well prepared but completely unprepared from a hydration and electrolyte replenishment point of view and the mistake the mistake that i was making was drinking probably too much fluid And not taking enough enough in anywhere near enough salt, and there was a there was that that balance was all out of whack for me. That being said, I don't think I would want to sell the idea of you know getting your hydration right as a magic bullet for racing in the heat. We work with a lot of elite athletes that that. That perform well in the heat, and some that really struggle in the heat. And sometimes it can be due to other genetic factors. Sometimes it can do to be due to your a bit more due to your body type. You know, if you're a bigger, more muscular athlete, often you're producing a lot more heat and finding it more difficult to offload the environment. Sometimes it can just be that some people aren't, aren't particularly adept at modifying their tactics and strategy and pacing for the heat. That's a huge thing you know especially in endurance racing if you if you want to race well in the heat in my opinion if you're struggling you need to learn to kind of keep a lid on your efforts and pace you can't afford to race in a very spiky and emotional way and going hard on the hills and chasing people and this that you've got to you've got to learn to sort of the heat's gonna the heat is like a weight pressing down on you and you've got to accept that and you've got to suppress your performance levels a little bit. I, I think I'm right in saying that it was Jan Fredino in triathlon who was interviewed about Kona and he kind of said, look, the heat out there is the equivalent of racing at altitude or something. You know, it's just it just takes something away from your performance. You have to accept that. You have to accept you're gonna be 10% of your watts down on the bike and you have to accept that you're gonna be Fifteen seconds, twenty seconds, thirty seconds a k slower on the run because of that heat and and I think there is there are and I would put myself in that category as well. there are a lot of athletes that are unwilling to accept that, so they they want to do their best performance in the heat and they they can't they can't mentally cope with this idea that oh, okay, in the heat i've just got to back off a little bit, and then I think that that can undo their performance so it's kind of it's kind of complicated, but I would say that stating the obvious hydration is such a huge component of racing in the heat and especially if you're someone who has a high sweat rate or has a high level of salt loss, then it's an area that you need to be nailing before you go and try and do your best in a hot race.
0: Yeah, sure thing. Um and Andy obviously we're talking I'm talking to you today as an expert in hydration and electrolytes. We're gonna go through the details. At the time when you were figuring it out, who did you turn to like or what information was sort of available for you?
1: So the first port of call for me was the internet, the early internet, and the it was the it was actually ultra running forums on the internet. So this is where I I obviously did a lot of Google searching. I've still got some of the folders of stuff that I found back then, um, and. A Lot of the people that were chatting about electrolyte balance and hydration were people that were running 100 milers. So I remember jumping into some of the early Western States 100 forums and h- hearing stories of people that, that they were a bit like, um, they resonated with me, you know, it was people and and there seemed to be this controversy, which there still is about some people need loads of salt, some people don't, some people swear blind that it's not a thing, some people think it really is a thing um that you, you can ask 10 people and get 10 different answers on it but i i was in a kind of a desperate position where it's like well i've got to try something so i started reading this i started taking more salt tablets and things and, and then in parallel i talked to a friend of mine who was a doctor a heart surgeon and he obviously has a, a a massive amount of knowledge about electrolyte balance in the body. And he looked at the symptoms I was suffering and looked at some blood test results and said, and looked at the, my clothing after races, which was caked in salt and said, look, all of what you're describing is consistent with like massive fluid and electrolyte loss. What are you? And, and, we, and we did a very simple spreadsheet, like what are you taking in? What are you losing? There's a massive Delta between those two. And we just closed the gap, which essentially boiled down to like me taking more salt and and um, and drinking less water, a little bit less water.
0: Yeah. And so, Andy, can we do like a bit of a 101 on sweating, on electrolytes just to bring people up to speed? I mean, I know it seems pretty rudimentary, like surely athletes will know this stuff. And I, I think there's obviously some base knowledge, but I think that, you know, the way that you describe it, it just it it's a lot more nuanced or there's a little bit more to it than what I think we we might think it is or or the importance particularly as you say you talk to 10 different people you're going to get 10 different answers as as to the importance of it so first yeah first just the physiological process of sweating you know how does it impact an athlete's performance
1: yeah so sweating is your body's response to to a rise in core body temperature so your core body temperature there's lots of things in the body i'm sure most athletes will be familiar with the term homeostasis so homeostasis is is your body trying to keep certain physiological parameters within certain ranges so your Blood sodium levels are one that we'll probably talk about in a bit, and your blood glucose levels might be another. Um, your core body temperature is one that now operates in a really narrow range. So usually it's about 37 degrees Celsius. If it drops significantly below that, you go hypothermic, and if it goes significantly above that, you become hyperthermic. But the range is small. So if your body core body temperature is below 35, you're in trouble. And if you if usually if you're above 39 and a half or 40, you're also in trouble. So when you your hypothalamus in your brain detects a rise in your core body temperature when you exercise. And the reason your body temperature goes up when you exercise is because exercise is quite, um, muscular contraction is quite inefficient. You, you produce, you don't produce a lot of power compared to how much heat you produce. I think it's like 23% efficiency for a cyclist. or it? It's like really, and that and cyclists are very efficient. So it's not, it's, it's not actually, um, a good system in that respect. So all this excess heat is being thrown off and you've got to you've got to offload that to the external environment, otherwise you're going to cook yourself. And so what happens is the hypothalamus detects a rising core body temperature. It sends neurotransmitters down the chain to your sweat glands, which are at the surface of your skin, all over your body, and tells them to produce sweat. And the sweat is drawn from your blood plasma, from the capillary bed, it goes onto the skin and evaporates away. And that evaporation is what cools you down and the simplest way to think about how effective that is is that feeling that when you jump in the sea or in a swimming pool on a even on a baking hot day when you get out and a little breeze comes past you feel instantly quite cold and that's because that water's evaporating off and that's the effect that your body's taking advantage of when you when you exercise and sweat and so Although sweating can be seen as a bit of a bad thing or an Achilles heel for athletes, without it, we wouldn't be able to exercise in the heat, which is why if you take your dog for a run in the winter, it'll kick your ass. But if you take it for a run in the summer, you'll leave it standing because it, it can't sweat and thermoregulate in the same way that we can.
0: Okay. So, and you mentioned, you know, you yourself have quite a high sweat rate. I actually think I have quite a low sweat rate. I remember being on a treadmill doing a um, lactate threshold test maybe 15 years ago and the coach that I was working with at the time, he's like, you're not sweating. And it was like super hot and there was like no air con and I just didn't really, you know, like, I didn't, I I had a glow on, but I certainly wasn't what he was expecting. So obviously there are individual variations with, with sweat rate for, for people.
1: Definitely. And they can be quite substantial. So the biggest sweating athletes we deal with, not exclusively but they tend to be the bigger athletes you know it kind of fits doesn't it a bigger body size you're going to produce more heat you, and you've got more fluid to lose so you're going to sweat more so we've seen elite tennis players six foot six tennis players sweating four or five liters an hour you know um, which is pretty incredible we also see small and often it is female athletes there seems to be a little bit of a discrepancy we, although female athletes can sweat as much as male athletes there's an overlap in the middle the lower sweat rates that we see tend to come from female athletes and the higher sweat rates tend to come from male athletes so you kind of fit in the the bill as a smaller female athlete maybe it's not entirely unexpected that your sweat rate be on the the lower end but um, it is it is kind of super individual and we we also deal with problems at both ends of that spectrum because although if you don't sweat very much, it is kind of good for conserving fluid. It can hold you back in hot conditions if you're if you're not able to cool adequately. Um at the same time, the the guy that I mentioned who's got like a four or five litre an hour sweat rate, yeah, he's actually that he was actually a South African tennis player, Kevin Anderson, who's a Wimbledon finalist, and he would typically really struggle in the heat because he couldn't keep up with his fluid losses. So he would he would he had heat stroke, he collapsed a couple of times, he had lots of problems with cramping and stuff because he lost, he just you can't physically drink four or five litres an hour. He was impressive in that he could probably drink two, two and a half litres an hour. But even so, that still it doesn't take long for a big amount of fluid loss and electrolyte loss to compound and leave his body in a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I um you'll likely be familiar with well, actually I don't know. Uh Jim Cotter in his work in Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I recall because I studied for Z at the same time where well, he was just coming into the department um in I think in a couple of my final years. And as I recall, he his group reanalyzed hydration data as it related to performance. And so up until this point we thought that Um, A certain level of dehydration was, and and it was quite a a very small level of dehydration would be detrimental to performance, but his um, analysis of it suggested that the way that we looked at the data prior to his group doing it, and I don't know if it was just his group, but in fact it wasn't, it was the way we were analysing it sort of gave us skewed information about The relationship between hydration and performance in essence what i'm asking is um to what extent does dehydration impact negatively on performance like how dehydrated do you have to
1: get that that's still kind of like the million dollar question because it's more complicated than we you know people love a simple answer to what sounds like a simple question like okay so the human body we must be able to tolerate x amount of dehydration before we suffer y decrement in performance and it's it's just not that simple an answer it the early research was quite motivated it was funded in such a way that it was it was quite motivated to prove to prove without doubt that dehydration was catastrophically negative for performance. There's been a lot of stones thrown at some of the, some of the earlier work that people at the Gatorade Sports and Science Institute did because they were funded by a sports drink. And obviously the aim is to like sell more sports drinks. So w- how can you do that? Well, with the marketing people get hold of the data, they want to say dehydration's a, a real negative. You need to drink, drink, drink. And a lot of uh, you know um, Tim Noakes wrote a whole book about it called Waterlogged and To try and correct all of this. And there were some, the way studies were done, for example, I think one of the things that Jim and his group maybe critiqued was you would, some of the studies would forcibly dehydrate people and then get them to exercise. And that's not very representative of what really happens. You don't sit in a sauna not drinking, even though you feel thirsty, and then go for a run. I think we all know that if you do that, your performance is going to suffer. Um, However, it's a different dynamic if you start a run well hydrated. But then incrementally dehydrate because you're not drinking during that run. Maybe your body treats that situation differently. Maybe it has different physiological consequences. So, if you forcibly dehydrate someone by two or 3% and then get them to exercise, you're going to see a drop off in performance. If you see someone drop their body weight by two or 3% throughout an exercise bout, maybe you're not going to see that same level because the body can kind of cope with it. But I would also say, you know, I'm out here in Spain at the moment working with a cycling team and they're doing some very interesting heat training protocols out here. So one of the things they're doing is they're doing a five hour ride outside um, in moderately you know temperate conditions, 15, 18 degrees. They're coming straight back and they're putting all of their winter clothing on and sitting on a trainer indoors and spinning on for another hour with no fan, with only a limited amount of fluid. And they're they're trying to you know they're trying to create a, a heat training stress adaptation you know to boost blood volume and that kind of thing, but they're playing around with their hydration protocols because if they don't drink enough on that preceding five hours and if their body weight drop starts to become too severe, they immediately can see it in that final hour that they either can't complete the hour that their heart rate gets out of control that they feel absolutely terrible and even a small amount of additional drinking actually enables them to perform that hour in the heat to a, to a much um, more comfortable degree and they can perform better. So I think, you know, as as one example there, like maybe you can suffer a bit more of a, a a percentage body weight drop in colder conditions where there's not quite so much pressure on your um, cardiovascular system to provide cooling. But when you're exercising in the heat, I think dehydration can be quite catastrophic. So I actually wrote a blog for our website which might be worth sharing with you if people are interested in this topic. And it basically says how it's called how much dehydration can you tolerate before your performance suffers. And it tries to to dig into it. And I guess the punchline is it's probably somewhere between like one and four percent or so, maybe five percent for some people, but it's it's not necessarily a fixed solid number. Um and it's something we've all got to, we've all got to learn by trial and error for ourselves.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'm thinking about, you know, there are differences in the type of athlete as well and not necessarily um just body size, but you mentioned genetics as a potential sort of reason for why some people might sweat more or less. And I'm just thinking about like world record um, performances by marathon runners, you know, and obviously these guys and, and, uh, females are out there a whole lot less time than your average marathoner. So maybe it's a time thing. So they don't, not, don't have the time to get quite as dehydrated. Um, I don't think they're drinking a whole lot from, from the research that I've seen. But do you, like, could there be something genetic about those individuals that means that they don't suffer the impact of dehydration? the same extent that someone else might have under a similar condition like
1: yeah i I think like you my my sense on this is that there's numerous genetic factors that make that give elite athletes the potential to to do the performances the rest of us can only aspire to do probably it is true i i've never seen any research or i don't know what those factors might be relating to the ability to tolerate dehydration, but I'm I'm pretty certain that, like in other ways, maybe they can either produce less or tolerate lactic acid or recent lactic acid better, or there's this or carry oxygen better, deliver or expel waste gases better. There's got to be loads of different incremental things that that come together. I think some of the papers that have looked at elite marathon runners dropping a huge amount of body weight during the race, what what they don't necessarily articulate is the fact that, you know, the famous one is about Haile Gabri Selassie, I think, losing about 7 or 8%, maybe even 10% of his body weight um, at the end of a marathon where he ran like 204, which at the time, 204 is still a world-class time, but at the time it was like close to the world record. And, you know, when I, I would almost be certain that when that guy stood on the start line for that race, he's not at his normal baseline body weight. You know, he's carb-loaded. well hydrated i used to stand on the start line of a race two or three kilos heavier than what would be a standard training weight because if you really do aggressively carb load and take on some additional fluid and salt beforehand although you are starting a bit heavy you are you are packing a reservoir of 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 energy and fluids and salts that you're going to burn through in the race inside and so it's beneficial and it whilst he dropped maybe maybe let's say eight percent of his body weight or whatever it was is that a true representative is that eight percent the same as blows in eight percent i would argue potentially not and and so i think that's one factor that doesn't get discussed um the other thing that you've already pointed out is actually these these guys at the sharp end a marathon is is an endurance event for anyone but it's only two hours for the faster men and it's only just over two hours nowadays for the faster women so that's a whole different proposition to someone who's going for three or four or five hours
0: yeah yeah for sure and andy you mentioned sex difference briefly when i was just talking about my sweat rate and you said you know smaller female etc are there any other known sex differences that might change how we approach hydration um, in a meaningful way. I mean, six differences in a meaningful way that actually would would you, we have to consider? I
1: think. Because I know
0: a lot of people talk about it.
1: Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I feel like at the moment the evidence sort of suggests that the answer to that is no, not really. I think you know, uh, the, this the physiological demands on men and women doing endurance in, in the in the. In the sort of cardiovascular aspects that are most affected, and the heat management aspects that are affected. Don't really aren't really affected by by um, male female sex difference too much. You know, it's like there, there has been talk and a lot there have been papers written about the difference in fluid retention and fluid loss at different times of the menstrual cycle. But a lot of the summary of all of that, and again, uh, Abby, one of the sports scientists who worked for us at, at PFNH, wrote wrote an article about this because we got asked the question a lot and looked at all the evidence and kind of came out on the side that look, there are maybe some slightly statistical differences in the way women's bodies handle fluid at different times of the month compared with men who are obviously more stable in that regard and but but does any of this really add up to like a substantially enough difference to affect the, the way you hydrate for performance it's like well not really you know the, the biggest difference is you as an individual if we took your data and and didn't know your Gender, whether whether we just know your sweat rate and we know your sweat sodium concentration and we know the same for a, a guy we could we could give you a hydration plan that is compatible with that it doesn't matter what whether you're a man or a woman
0: yeah yeah no that's as i understood it as well um which is um reassuring um andy you've mentioned uh obviously we talked uh, fluid loss and we've mentioned a couple of times obviously sodium so can we just have a brief chat about the role of the electrolytes particularly I mean sodium obviously but you know if I'm looking at a sports drink I'm also going to see magnesium and potassium and people sometimes get a little bit hyper focused on the um, well I don't, this is my opinion on those nutrients as opposed to as I understand it, sodium, which is the one that might almost matter, but I might be wrong about that. So it'd be good to chat about those electrolytes.
1: All, all electrolytes are really critical in the body, and you have to you have to ingest them because you can't manufacture them. So they all perform different roles. A lot of them are to do with electrical conductivity, um, nerve impulses, um, balancing of um, potential around cell membranes and communication and that sort of stuff so when you get electrolyte imbalances all sorts of catastrophic things happen you know if you get a, a really big imbalance in potassium levels it can affect your heart for instance because heart heart muscle when when they do a heart operation the way that they stop the heart beating is they infuse a load of potassium into it so you know you, you have to be super careful with when you're messing around with electrolyte balance the reason that sodium gets so much air time as it as an electrolyte that matters to athletes is because your sweat comes from your blood plasma and the predominant electrolytes in your blood plasma are sodium and chloride salt you know table salt and you whilst you do lose some potassium magnesium and calcium you lose those electrolytes in relatively small amounts and in even in ultra distance activity it's arguable that you're not going to you're not going to lose them in amounts that become physiologically significant but sodium and chloride sodium in particular you can lose enough of even in two or three hours if you're a heavy sweater that can put your homeostasis out of whack and cause a cascade of problems so sodium is touted as the most important one for athletes and that is true all of them are important, but as long as you're eating a balanced diet most of the time, sodium is the one you want to be looking for in, on sports nutrition products because it's the one that might help you maintain your performance if you're losing a lot of sweat.
0: Yeah, okay. And, you know, you mentioned that you were a salty sweater and this was indicative a lot of salt on your um, uh, exercise gear. Uh, indicative of the fact that you're dumping a lot of sodium, therefore you need more. Whereas one of the things that I've heard is that if you're dumping a lot of sodium, you don't need the sodium. So, you know, I think there are a lot. um, So how does that, yeah, what's the deal? What's the go with that?
1: Yeah. Most of the sodium regulation that goes on your body is done at the kidneys, not through sweat glands. So you, 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 okay. you sweat out sodium, and there are genetic reasons why some people sweat more sodium out than others. They're not fantastically well understood, but they have been doing biopsy studies and things where they've looked at the structure of sweat glands. Some people have more channels for reabsorption of the the um, sodium and chloride ions than than others, some people the hormonal hormonal factors control a little bit how much sodium gets reabsorbed in an extreme case people with cystic fibrosis have a, a genetic um, condition that doesn't allow them to reabsorb a lot of sodium at all so their salt their sweat is incredibly salty and so there's this big range of of difference between how much people lose and what we found with our testing and we've done a lot of sweat testing now is that that number for you is relatively stable usually so my sweat is is and always has been extremely salty other people we test only lose a small amount and whilst i've heard the argument before that you know you are wasting salt if you're sweating it out i'm not going to say that that's not entirely you know it's not it's not implausible that By taking in more salt, you might see more on your clothes. But more often than not, in conversations with athletes that we have, and it was certainly the case for me, it's like doesn't matter how much salt I do or don't take in. My my kit is encrusted with salt. You know, I've I've literally come on to talk to you, having walked off doing a sweat test with a professional Tour de France rider who's been riding in the pro peloton since two thousand and seven, and he did a sweat test for the first time today, and he's he said, look, I after every race, I'm my jersey will stand up on its own. It's like so crusted with salt. I have cramps. I have problems in the heat. I've learned to combat this by like taking more salt, having more electrolyte drinks. But he's really curious to know what's the deal. Well, sure enough, we sweat test him. His sweat sodium score is like double the average.
0: Wow, and, yeah. And he's, yeah.
1: he's learned that the whole So I'm not, I don't want to, and I wouldn't dismiss what you're saying, that there may be cases where some people, if they're taking loads of extra salt, there may be a mechanism by which some of that ends up getting leached out in their sweat, because it does end up in your blood and, and yada yada. But at the same time, I would I would caution against the blanket like, well, if you're taking too much, if you're taking, if you're seeing salt on your skin, it's because you're taking too much salt. I've seen way too way too many compelling cases that that would completely refute that.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's really good to know. And um, and I think there's the. And I I'll talk, I want to talk to you about the cramps as well because I mean you're in the trenches looking at athletes every day and thousands of athletes and I think there's real value there whereas if we're just looking at literature or um, other indicators of the importance of electrolytes or how people sort of lose fluid and electrolytes then you can miss if that's your only evidence that you're sort of drawing on as your evidence base I think you can miss a lot of um, real life stuff um, yeah, yeah yeah for sure. And you mentioned your cardiologist friend talking about blood markers of electrolytes. And I have actually seen a couple of papers um, over the last couple of years talking about athletes who appear to have lower levels of magnesium and potassium um, sort of blood markers. Is this another way to sort of for athletes to look at their electrolyte requirements or or are they a little bit too generalised? as opposed to getting a sweat test when you're in that exercise um, setting?
1: Yeah, they, they are potentially very useful, but they're too, they are also categorically kind of two different things because what, what we're measuring when we do a sweat test is we're, we're trying to model what, you are going to lose from your body over the period of time that you're racing and training so we're interested in modeling your sweat rate how many liters of sweat per hour and we're interested in modeling how much sodium is in that sweat so if we keep the numbers simple and say mickey you're losing one liter of sweat per hour with a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter that means every hour roughly you're going to lose one liter of fluid and a thousand milligrams of sodium extrapolate that up And you can, for a five-hour race, it's five litres and 1,000 milligrams of sodium that you're going to lose. When you look at blood markers, that's kind of downstream, that's internal. The body's trying very hard by homeostasis to keep your electrolyte levels in balance. And so if you do a blood test and show up as being low or deficient in magnesium, potassium, there's, there's probably something along the, along the lines of like a dietary insufficiency and a little bit inability to absorb it maybe you're wasting some of those electrolytes for some reason it could be medication you're on it could be a medical condition and so the upshot of that might be that you address that with more dietary intake or supplementation but it's not necessarily going to be that you're deficient in that because you've sweated it out Um, and it's probably more it could well or it's more likely probably to be a more chronic thing rather than an acute thing because sodium and fluid loss during exercise is a very acute problem you can have no problem and then three hours later you can have a massive problem whereas low magnesium is more likely to have come on over a long chronic period of time
0: yeah no that makes that makes perfect sense, and and speaking of obviously the testing, which is what I want to chat to you about. I will be honest, Andy. Like as I've heard of sweat testing for like the last I don't know fifteen years, and I've always been skeptical. I've been like, well, you're sitting down. I'll, actually, I'll get you to talk me through the process actually, because I this is it. I don't actually know about it as, as much as what I probably think I do. I probably have this idea, and I'm completely wrong. But I'm like, you know. How can a sweat test determine someone's losses, um, an athlete's losses, um, in like at one point in time? If, for example, they are out doing ultra marathons um, in hot environments, or they're doing Ironman in the freezing cold, or um, an Olympic distance, in a you know different events, different environments. So I was uns- I, I was skeptical of the value of a one time sort of test. Can you talk me through the process? Because I and I have different feelings about it now after um listening to you on other podcasts. So I'd just like to yeah, have the conversation.
1: Yeah, no, and I think it's it's always kind of healthy to attack these from from a, a skeptical point of view. If I rewind to tell my story in a bit more detail, just to start with, like when I sat down with Dr. Jutley, my cardio um cardiac surgeon friend, He said to me, look, there's a test we can do to see how much salt you lose in your sweat. It's very well medically validated. And he said, I bet you, you will be like super high on that scale. So I was like, okay, well, I've got nothing to lose here. He's going to hustle me in the back door of a hospital and get me a free test of my sweat. So we sat down at the hospital, did put electrodes on the arm. Um, stimulate the sweat glands. They took a sweat sample, ran it through a machine. Sure enough, the guy goes, that's really high. That's 1,800 milligrams of sodium per liter, which is like double what the average person loses. And Dr. Jutley's there all smug, takes a fiver off me or whatever, and, you know, wins the bet sort of thing. But it, the, the The reason that the the sweat test is the the sweat sodium test is potentially very useful as a one time test is it's quite like i said it's quite static with individuals yeah we do occasionally see cases where maybe the the number moves around over time a little bit but they're rare and we've tested and repeat tested a lot of people we've also more recently done a lot of back to back testing with sweat collected during exercise and sweat collected during are, an, are stimulated analysis and the two numbers converge really nicely you know um case in point the the athlete that i just mentioned this cyclist that i've just been working with today the reason he came for a sweat test with us is not only because of all the symptom history he's got but also because the the, the cycling team um did some sweat testing on him earlier this week his numbers came out super high and they were like "Mm, that's interesting we want to verify that we want to like get another data point on that and sure enough our test married up pretty well with their on the road exercise test so that's not uncommon we see that all the time and so measuring your sweat sodium concentration we liken it to knowing what your t-shirt size is it's like you don't need to know exactly because it will it's a physiological variable it's going to be a little bit different one day to the next but if you know whether you're a small a medium a large or an extra large or in this case like a low a moderate a high or very high then that gives you a really interesting data point to then plug in against also your sweat rate also the weather conditions also the intensity of the exercise the duration of the exercise and you start to be able to say because i would say if you start at the extremes like categorically you would say someone who has low sweat sodium who has a low sweat rate who's doing a short distance event in cold conditions does not need electrolyte supplementation or even a lot of fluid supplementation. Let's go all the way to the other end. Someone who's got very, very high sweat sodium, who has a high sweat rate, who's competing in in a long race in the heat, and who's also very fit, so they can push themselves very hard, they need a shitload of fluid and electrolyte supplementation to keep them on track. And if you bookend everyone between those two scenarios, like clearly we're all on that spectrum somewhere, and so this is what drives me insane with the argument around sweat testing, electrolyte supplementation, whatever Is like. There's a lot of very clever people out there who can't seem to accept this premise that this is a spectrum. For some people, we can say, no, you don't need anything. For other people, we have to say, yes, you need, you really, really need a lot of everything like it, it i can't tell you how mental it drives me that there are people that would just oh well no the sweat test is a waste of time because we can just put everyone just needs a bit of sodium or or the extremists who are like no no one needs to replace sodium and it's like well there's just too much evidence which which you are willfully ignoring that suggests that this is a this is a spectrum and it's like it, it does amaze me how dogmatic it's become. And I've, you know, maybe, maybe rightly in the past that I've been accused of obviously banging the drum for the benefits of sweat testing, the requirement for sweat testing. And for me as an individual, I have to recognise my own biases. It was insanely useful for me. And it was it's incredibly helpful for me. And and therefore you kind of yeah, you want it to be useful and helpful for everyone. And maybe it isn't. But also let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not that it's not useful for anybody. You know, like some of these people that are, that are banging on it regularly in the sort of sports science coaching, nutrition media at the moment about how sweat testing or sodium supplementation is a waste of time, they're they are effectively denying that I exist, you know, in terms of not me as a as a commercial entity, but me as a as a human individual. And what has been gratifying over the years is, is a number of elite professional and amateur athletes who appear to suffer with the same problems have gravitated to us, have asked us the questions, had the tests, followed the protocols, and quite often have outstanding results as a, as a result. And so, you know, it's kind of, yeah, I've probably gone on about that enough, but that's a real sore spot for me in how, you know, the dialogue around all of this is being perceived in the media at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, that's that makes perfect sense. And as you were describing, you know, yeah, it might be a a one-time sort of test or not a one-time test, but, you know, you're in a certain environment when you do the test. Then, of course, my logical brain kicked in. As soon as you started talking, I went, oh, of course. Of course, you're just then going to go, well, this is what I'm like in this sort of static environment. Obviously, it's going to play out slightly differently if the environmental conditions are different. So, you yeah, that know, makes, that makes perfect sense. And for sure, Andy, I've... I've come around to your way of thinking much more than what I was maybe 10 years ago or even five years ago around the utility of knowing your sweat rate because, of course, there's sweat rate, but there's sodium loss as well and they can uncouple, right? So you can be a a low-sweater. But actually, lose quite a bit of salt within that. Is that, is that right?
1: Definitely, yeah. So, you could, we look, look at it like a quadrant graph like that. So, on the bottom left of the graph, you've got people with a low sweat rate and a low sweat sodium concentration. And above them, you might have a high sweat rate, but a low sweat sodium con- concentration. In the other corner, you've got a, a low sweat sodium concentration, but a high sweat rate. And in the top right hand corner, you've got the people like me who've got a high sweat rate and a high sweat sodium. Concentration, and if we do a sweat test, we can effectively kind of plot you onto that graph somewhere. And the, and the further you skew towards the right and the upper right, the more attentive you're going to need to be about your hydration. So I keep talking about it because it's very relevant to me at the moment. But here with the cycling team, they've got a beautifully simple system for doing this. They sweat test everyone. They look at their sweat rates and their sweat sodiums. They categorize them as kind of low, moderate or high requirements for fluid and electrolytes. And then on the bike in races, they have three bottles available. They have a blue cap bottle, which has water. They have a a white cap bottle, which has carbohydrate drink. And they have a red cap bottle, which has a carbohydrate plus electrolyte drink. And, the nutritionists just based on the weather conditions the length of the race the likely intensity they program it in for the riders that you know the saltier heavier sweating guys will need more bottles and more of the red top bottles because the high proportion of electrolytes along with carbs and then the cooler the conditions the lower the sweat losses sodium losses those guys will drink more of the um, the white top bottles, carbohydrate only, and then the water is used to kind of supplement as and when you know if sometimes you just need a bit more water, and they will use it you know like that. But they get so many of their calories and carbs from their liquids that it's kind of mainly a, a binary decision of like, are you a guy who needs exclusively electrolyte carb bottles? Do you need? a a mixture of carb electrolyte and carb only or do you just need carbohydrate only because you don't have a high requirement for salt at all
0: do you see many of those athletes Andy like the ones that legitimately could run a um, 30k trail event not worry at all about salt
1: yeah yeah we see uh, as yeah we we definitely see some people you know we've tested someone here this week with really really low sweat sodium concentration we literally have seen both ends of the spectrum um and and this the guy that guy was a guy who's like a podium rider in the tour de france and he's like well i don't worry too much about salt intake um it's just not a thing for me and sure enough his sweat test score shows he loses like literally less than half of what the average person loses in their sweat sodium wise so for them accumulating sodium loss is just not a big problem in races. Whatever the sports nutrition they're taking and food they're eating is obviously balancing it out. It's a non-issue. So you just you don't worry about it.
0: Yeah. And then is there any detriment to taking salt if you don't need it? Like what um what is the potential pitfall? As I understand it, um, when I talk about salt with people, I'm like, well, you're gonna know if you don't need it because you're gonna need to go to the bathroom pretty quickly because salt can have that like too much sodium can have that effect on some people, um, but like, should you know, if you're just taking salt tabs because you've been told, but for example, if you didn't need them, would there be anything? Um, what would be the downside of that? On yeah, a end?
1: the big the big chat in the cycling teams, and we've seen this with some riders, is that if you go like in the in uh, this pro cycling world, the, the Vuelta Espana is in the relatively hot part of the year in August, September it, it can be scorching race like 40 plus degrees and guys that are recommended to take more salt and do so unnecessarily like they don't lose a lot of sweat and salt they can gain body weight because sodium helps okay, you to retain fluid and you gain so that's one potential detrimental side the other thing as well is that the no, salt is controversial and there are different opinions about it but too much salt in anyone's diet is seen and deemed to be a bad oh, thing of so um it could it's like like anything anything to excess is usually bad so when we recommend certain people take a large amount of salt it's not actually what i would determine as being in excess it's just to meet their higher requirement they have higher requirements it's, it's to meet those needs um would you advise someone to just go crazy with the salt you know whatever like probably not it's not it's not a good idea i do and i have been on record as saying you know In many circumstances, I would say racing in the heat, sweating a lot, a little bit more salt than you perhaps need rather than a little bit less. I see there being less downside and more potential upside. But I'm also aware that encouraging athletes to take more of something is a dangerous game because as soon as you tell athletes that more of something is going to help them, some athletes will double it, some will triple it, and then there'll be one out there who will 10 times it. And then, you know, you've just got to be real about that. When I say a little bit more, it's like it is a little bit more, not a multiple of.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that one of the cyclists you were working with, they did their own sort of sweat testing out in the field and they wanted another data point, so they came to you. What was the exercise test? Was it the simple sort of, they, they weighed themselves they jumped on and rode for a while and they accounted for their consumption and then they weighed themselves again is that the sort of field test for testing your sweat rate
1: 100 percent, yeah that's what they do real simple you know just do it accurately and do it re- repeatedly so that you get an average of data yeah
0: nice that's good that's what i tell my people to do too. Yeah. so i'm glad that that we agree um andy you mentioned cramps and this, you know, I see this a lot. Like I've got friends who who are sodium deniers um, and and other people who swear by it. For cramps, because as I understand the state of the literature, you can't look at the literature and, and conclusively say, yep, it's a, an electrolyte. No, it's a sodium or a salt loss issue. However, I, like what I see with some clients is that unless you're, they're taking a lot of salt, they're either going to get cramps or they do get cramps. Um, and of course, if they get cramps and they take salt, the cramp resolves. So in your sort of clinical experience, um, is, it, is what you see different to what I might read in the literature about the importance of replacing sodium? Like how does that sort of sit?
1: Yeah, I'd say the literature in the last, I don't know how many years, but probably the last 20 plus years has, has swung to being way more conservative or even in denial of of the association between electrolyte and cramps. Kevin Miller, at, who's based in Texas, has written some more, very recently written some more balanced papers, I feel, on the kind of multifactorial aspect of cramping it being being honest in the fact that no one really understands cramping that well and that multiple different reasons and and remedies seem to exist. From my clinical experience and my own personal experience, I'm I would be fairly confident in saying like, look, with endurance athletes, especially those competing in the heat, somewhere between 70 and 80% of cases seem to either be helped by or resolved by taking more salt. And in the absence of any, um, like there isn't a really strong rationale for exactly my, what, my, that, what why that might be, but there's also like hundreds of years of history of of people using salt effectively to reduce cramping in people working in mines, and people stoking boilers on ships and in, on trains, in in people yeah um, in the military in. American footballers in in the US and in lots and lots you talk to old school endurance athletes and they'll be like, Oh, you're cramping, take more salt. You know, it's like a it's like a, a thing. And whilst we should whilst it is good to be skeptical and question things, again, it's a bit like the whole do we need sodium period question. Like there's a there's there is always people in sports science like crusading through to make their name and a great way to make your name is to just come in with this, ah, oh, everything we knew before is wrong, now it's this, you know. And you know, I, I always say to athletes, if you're suffering with cramps, let's have a look at your food and electrolyte intake as one part of the equation. Let's tr- also let's try it. Let's try playing around with those values because it's effectively close to free as an intervention, or like very very low cost, extremely low risk. And if if it works, you have probably solved your problem, and in a really simple way. Like if it, it if it doesn't work. Okay, let's look elsewhere, but, but let's, let's try the simple stuff first, you know, because a lot of people say, yeah, hey, I've tried electrolytes. And then you look at what they've tried. Oh, they've tried dropping one electrolyte tablet into a litre of water and dissolving it and diluting it to the point of it being ineffective. You know, there are ratios and dosages and we've got, again, I keep referencing them, but we've got a great blog on our website about cramp and the kind of protocols to follow. And I think if people are honest and if they follow those protocols, we, we get, honestly into the business each week we probably get half a dozen 10 emails from people who are so ecstatic and over over the moon that using the stronger electrolyte products has relieved their cramps or resolved their cramping and of course like i was as an athlete you you find a problem if you're a persistent cramper you find a problem that solves it you're going to stick with it these these this always reminds me of that that famous story in like biology or physics or whatever it is around the 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 bumblebee that can't fly you know because the scientists have worked out that the body weight and the way it flaps its wings and everything like the bumblebee can't fly but no one told the bee and it kind of just flaps its wings and takes off and you know like we don't know how and why taking more salt and it and fluids potentially helps with cramping but a lot of people a lot of athletes fortunately seem to not care too much about what those scientists are saying and are willing to try it and for some of them yeah all they needed to know
0: yeah 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 oh for sure and it's and I would say as a as an athlete and a clinician like the problem of cramping it's like stitch like you know we don't know a lot about that either which is One of the most common things that occurs and you've got like 18 different ways with which you can resolve it and probably 27 ways with or sort of reasons for why it occurred, but you know, it could be any number of them on any sort of given day. It's just one of those uh sports science mysteries.
1: Exactly.
0: Andy, so what do you do with a sweat test then? And are they available in I understand they're in Australia, uh in New Zealand? Do we have precision hydration? Um, uh, sort of gear here.
1: Yep, yeah, you do you've got a couple of people doing sweat testing actually so Russ Smith's one of them um, and all the details are on our website actually so if you go onto Precision Fuel and Hydration search for a sweat test centre near you or just email our squad at hello at com. we can put you in touch with a nearby test centre so yeah sweat testing every every week or month at the moment we're installing more sweat testing machines in more places so it's available fairly globally now it's Um, it's a very simple test if you do it our way you sit down we put some electrodes on your arm stimulate the sweat glands take a sweat sample and we can tell you your the electrolyte composition of your sweat so it's the end-to-end the actual physical part of the test takes 15 to 20 minutes it's probably a 45 minute appointment with the practitioner who can then talk you through the results and then as well as um, being able to talk to that practitioner you you get some Decent emails from us about the results, what they might mean, and a direct line of inquiry to talk to our sort of squad in the UK. We have a sports science customer service help team in the UK, and they're always on hand for emails, free video calls to talk you through the results and try and you know see see what we can learn about um, improving your performance with this this element of your physiology.
0: Ah, uh, super interesting. So from that test, part of the. Uh, consultation would cover how you then take that information and put it in this particular training session or that particular training session. And you also have SALT tabs, don't you? I'm so ignorant. I'm so sorry. But if is it the, like, below 500? I, I, you talk me through it is it. 250
1: 500 like exactly yeah we, we have four different strengths yeah. of electrolyte drinks so like a 250 which is super light 500 yeah. which is kind of regular strength a thousand milligrams a litre which is strong and 1500 which is super strong and then we also oh, wow. do a carb drink now which has electrolytes to the concentration of a thousand milligrams a litre so that's called Carbon electrolyte drink mix, and yeah, that you can. The idea with all of those is that you can tune your electrolyte intake based on your physiological needs, based on the demands of the event, your sweat rate, the weather conditions. Not that you need to be tweaking this like all the time. It's not like fine tuning, but it just means that, unlike basically all other sports nutrition brands out there, this gives you the ability to pull on this lever and adjust it to suit your needs.
0: Yeah. And Andy, do you have any opinions on like some of it? Because I, um, there are a number of companies now that are coming out with higher sodium options, like sugar-free higher sodium options for not just athletes, but just people in general. So these like Element would Probably have been one of the first that I've seen. But now, particularly in New Zealand, like they've just the same formulation or, you know, just complete ripoffs. And I I don't mean that in a bad way, but like it seems like they've just taken that formula and just run with it. I've seen a number of these um, products. Do you have opinions on that? Or
1: it's based on most of those products are based on rough, very roughly based on the World Health Organization sort of oral rehydration salts. mix which is which has been around since the you know the 70s 80s when it was discovered that if you put sodium and glucose together in, in a in a drink you can actually re in in that case it was for rehydrating people who'd had diarrhea and sickness usually due to cholera or something pretty nasty and it was just shown to be so much more effective way of re- rehydrating so it's kind of a lot of these companies go with the the, the medically proven marketing tagline or whatever because it's essentially kind of based on that i think that they're very popular because companies like lmnt have done fantastically well in um something that you something that you take every single day is a great subscription business model you know if you if you can say to people right you need to take one of these packets every day um you know sign up we'll send 30 of them to you a month and you know have at it and it'll make your life better by being optimally hydrated then there's a there's a beautiful simplicity in that and it it kind of works commercially the products definitely aren't bad um i would say in general they there is the science is right but it's it's a very it's a very generic approach to be saying to people you know you just need to take one of these a day and everything everything will be better i'll use out here in spain when i'm getting up really early in the morning doing some training myself i'm on my feet all day it's it's warm and dry we're living in air con. like i'm using quite a bit of our product just on a daily basis when i'm at home if i have a day off training and i'm not doing a lot like i don't start the day with a liter of electrolyte drink you know it's just like unnecessary so the nuance is missed but i can see why they're becoming popular and yeah it just it does seem to be a bit of a trend it's a bit of a thing you know like and, and I think we're, we're, we're falling back on this general perception. The public still has a general perception like hydration is good. I'm probably dehydrated most of the time. So maybe rather than like thinking about it any more deeply, I'll just buy one of these, throw out my water and get on with my day.
0: Yeah yeah and I I still, and I think as well a, a pushback to the likes of Gatorade and those other sports nutrition products which are historically have had lower sodium and it's full of and it's sugar you know and a lot of people would who might not necessarily need a sports drink would pick up something like that from a hydration perspective so I think that I suppose that these other companies and I I will admit to being a complete fan of element um just because they just taste so delicious um and and also have to admit i've never tried a precision hydration product i'm so sorry andy i've never come across it before um but anyway we can
1: correct correct that that's easy
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) great um uh but yeah a bit of a pushback to those um other companies albeit you mentioned the gatorade sports science institute I, i think that's i can't recall actually what they're that had a if that is in fact what they're called but i think there is a lot of good information on that website gatorade or not
1: absolutely yeah they they just got a bit of a bashing in the in the early days for i mean they're a proper sports science institute they do some great work but but there was a phase i think perhaps in the 80s maybe in the 90s when they appeared to exert uh a sort of outsized amount of influence on organizations like the ACSM because they were funding a lot of that and they were pushing this message that, you know, hydration is all that matters, you know, they're famously, I think it was in 96, the ACSM guidelines kind of basically said athletes should drink as much as they can tolerate and oh, yeah. then you get all these cases of hypernatremia, you get people over drinking there was no kind of ceiling put on it and, and that's what that was the what tim noakes and some of his colleagues and kind of there was a few people that really called that out and i think that was a good thing but what what's annoying about that is they they went so far as to like rubbish the idea of sports drinks and and hydration and tim noakes's message was basically ah, just drink water when you're thirsty you'll be fine you know, mm, that's all you to yeah all and it's like well maybe for 98 of the population you know who aren't particularly competitively active or doing a decent amount of sport and exercise that's that's probably okay advice but for yeah. some of us it's downright dangerous advice
0: yeah no for sure indeed i Yeah, no, I totally appreciate that, Um, uh, yeah, your thoughts around that. Um, So I'm mindful of the time, and I'm – so can we just finish up, Andy? So obviously I'm going to link to – your website and a couple of those blogs that we've talked about throughout because I think that they will be super helpful um, and interesting and also I'm pleased to hear uh, Russ Smith and someone else in New Zealand and and the fact that precision hydration is global not particularly expensive as I understand it as well as far as sort of testing goes for athletes
1: no it should i think a sweat test i don't actually know what the price is in new zealand dollars but it's it's going to be around about a couple of hundred new zealand dollars to get a sweat test i'd imagine based on our pricing in the uk um and it actually one race that you're probably aware of the Tarawera ultra marathon oh yeah
0: Um, doing the 50
1: russ is going to be there doing sweat testing i believe because he's there at, at the expo and we'll have some of our products there and stuff so maybe we can connect you to, um, yes. to go and, to go and see him there and have a chat, and if anyone's listening to this before that event and is in the area, you know that's that's a chance to go down and, and connect with someone who knows a lot about the brand.
0: Oh, that is awesome! And so we'll definitely make sure we publish that prior to Tatura. That would be great. Um, Andy, uh, where can people find you in Precision Hydration?
1: um all all over our socials you know precision fuel and hydration just searches up on you know instagram or or wherever i think the most valuable resource we have is the knowledge hub on our website which is Um, precisionhydration.com or precisionfuelandhydration.com both of those URLs take you to the right place and if people have got questions or they want to you know they've listened to this and it's sort of stimulated some questions i would say go onto our website and and contact us through our email system it's hello at precisionhydration.com we All emails get an answer by a human. There's no kind of bots or AI or things don't just get ignored. And we actually really love talking to people who've who've got problems to solve with their nutrition and hydration.
0: That is awesome. Thank you, Andy. And probably the most important question to finish off with, who do you support in the football?
1: Well, I grew up in Leicestershire, so I was a Foxes fan when I was younger. used to go to Filbert Street um, quite often can't can't really claim to have stayed loyal i live down in bournemouth now and i actually i can say this because there's no way he'll be listening to it but my no, my just turned 10 year old son i've just got him tickets to go to one of the next bournemouth games because oh, we're kind crazy. of trying to support the local team and they do use precision fuel and hydration products so it's kind of hard not to support somebody who uses our stuff
0: yeah. No, nice. Nice one, Andy. Well, um, I'm glad we got all the way to the end of the podcast before me asking you that because my husband edits this podcast and he's a huge Arsenal supporter. So, uh, yeah. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. No, so, I'm sorry. I'm uh, so, sorry to hear that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, he's, I'm sure he's lovely in other ways.
0: <laughs> Andy, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate that.
1: No, lovely talking to you. Thanks, Mickey. Alrighty, hopefully you enjoyed that. It was a real fun
0: conversation from my end. And, you know, I was obviously uh, very ignorant as to where you can find sweat testing and precision hydration, but we outlined that in the show for you guys here in New Zealand. And uh, all going well, I may be getting myself a sweat test this weekend at Tatawera. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Gil Lander. And he's from Inside Tracker, So we do a bit of a dive into uh, blood biomarkers and particularly looking at athletes, but also just healthy individuals. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Threads, Instagram, and Twitter at Mickey Willardin. Head to Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or my website, mickeywillardin.com. And you can send me an inquiry or book a one-on-one call with
1: me. All right, team, you have the best week. See you later.